Sex Communication, a podcast of explicit audio and frank conversation. How do we talk about sex? How do we communicate during sex? Well, if you're here now, then you're going to find out. My name is Brianne McGuire, and each week I share an uncensored peek into the things we don't discuss. Sex. 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 I can't say the word sex. Sexy, sexy, sex stuff. Sex. Hello and welcome to episode 117. Today is the third episode in our five-show series produced in collaboration with the Black Sex Worker Collective. As I've mentioned previously, on July 22nd, they will host a 22-hour fundraiser to support sex workers and other freelance artists directly impacted by COVID-19. Starting with episode 115, each weekly episode up until the event will feature some of the many performers and activists who are scheduled. As always, you can catch up on this series and all of our episodes at any time on sexcompod.com. This show is about destroying the stigma of sex and the fact of sex workers facing discrimination, prosecution, and an absence of basic labor rights is a demonstration of this stigma. It is my hope that with every episode in this series, you, the listener, become more informed, compassionate, and inspired to take supportive action. In today's show, I speak with Arabella Allure, a burlesque performer, advocate, and event organizer. Arabella and Salty Bish Creations will be presenting a performance showcase of the top BIPOC artists from Western Canada. Like our last guest, Arabella is also originally from Australia, though now based in Calgary, Canada. We discuss the challenges and benefits of stripping, along with how engaging in sex work challenges cultural patriarchy. All right, here we go. Hello, Arabella, how are you? I'm good. How are you doing, Bian? I am doing pretty well. Um, can you tell me a bit about what you do and how you wound up getting connected with the Black Sex Worker Collective? Sure. So I, um, I've been in, I guess, the greater entertainment industry for about a decade. Uh, I was um, a stripper and I've toured over a fair chunk of the world with that, which was amazing. And um, I was actually doing some competitions in Australia and someone said, oh, your style is very burlesque. And I was like, I don't know what that what that is. But uh, so then I started doing a little bit of learning, and then um, I moved to Canada, and I connected with the West community up there, and um, uh, started a festival and was producing some shows. And I also work with the Burlesque Hall of Fame. Um, but I met Akinos in uh, we were in Vienna for the uh, Vienna Boylesque Festival a few years ago. And although I'd seen and followed her online, I'd never actually met her in person. And that was the first time I got to meet her. And then when she was doing her big tour in uh, 2019 and I saw that she had some gaps in her schedule, I snapped her up and brought her to um, to perform in Edmonton and Calgary and we've uh, stayed connected ever since. And I'm just a really big supporter of uh, the work that she does. So when she approached me about doing this fundraiser for the Black Sex Worker Collective, even though I was super tired and it was a huge amount of information I just said yep sign me up I'm, I'm, I'm here for this. Can you tell me a bit about your event specifically uh, that'll be happening during the fundraiser? Absolutely so uh, I've got a, an amazing collective of performers from western Canada so uh, Vancouver Island a couple from Vancouver and a few from Alberta and uh, my entire cast is uh, uh, BIPOC artists and I have a cross-section of drag uh, some burlesque uh, as well as some spoken word and some performance art. So we present a variety show format um, gotcha. with someone hosting it. Excellent. Um, that sounds great. So can you tell me how did you get into performing? 
Where did it all start? Oh, so way back when I was still working in, um, uh, I was actually working as a marketing coordinator for a university and um, I couldn't afford to live. I was basically using my credit card to eat because uh, interest rates were climbing up. It was like a little bit before the big global financial crisis hit. So, um, yeah, one of my friends was stripping and I was like, fuck, you know, I sat down, I did the math and I realized if I got any second job that was above like above the table, I would lose uh, more than 50% of whatever I made to taxes because I already had full-time employment and it's just a lot of tax laws work in Australia. Um, and so then, yeah, I decided to to check out the local strip club and I that first night I didn't really make a whole lot of money but I saw the opportunity to be able to once I got a little bit more confident and within two months I'd managed to pay down my credit card and um, actually start putting away a little bit of money again um, and, yeah, I guess the rest is history. I, I continued just stripping part-time and working full-time for a little while and then, um, yeah, I made a bunch of LSD, realised my full-time job was actually what was killing me. And quit and then went and toured the world and I've never looked back. Good for you. So what is it like in Australia with um, like sex work and and strip clubs and are they classified the same or I mean, do you perceive that there's shame about it? Like culturally, how would you describe the stripping culture or its acceptance or not? Yeah, it's I mean, it's. Yeah, you can't get a strip club license in, I mean, I haven't lived in, I just probably should qualify. I haven't lived full-time in Australia since 2011. I've been in Canada since then. So I'm not sure if um, there has been a little bit of change in some of the laws, but when I was living there, uh, there were no more strip club licenses being given out. Like if you had a strip club license, it had been grandfathered in from somebody else um, or, you know, you'd previously owned the building that, and the, or the building had previously had a license associated with it. Uh, there are legal brothels in Melbourne as well. Um, so sex work has been largely been decriminalised there. Um, mm-hmm. But I think, but but obviously street street sex workers are still um, still prosecuted. Obviously, it is a as a at a much higher rate than other people. Um, and yeah, the clubs are the clubs are fairly restrictive. Um, majority of them are sort of no contact. So there's no grinding allowed in the clubs because then that switches to being no longer just a, an entertainment club. It's now as soon as you're grinding or doing any sort of stimulation on a customer, then that counts as being prostitution. So then the venue would need a different license to be allowed to have that sort of stuff happen. Gotcha. So one of the so, clubs I was working in, in fact, did did not make that abundantly clear, and so the club was bunded, was was actually busted, and a number of um, a number of girls ended up getting the fines for it. I was really lucky not to be working the night that um, the sting was done on the club. But the reason that the sting was done on the club was that they had continued to allow smoking in the club after smoking had been banned. So it was kind of just a secondary effect that they also then saw that the um, the laws around contact and, and all of that had been uh, had been bent quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, do you consider yourself as a stripper to be a sex worker or for you is it, I mean, how, how do you describe it? Oh, I definitely consider myself a sex worker as a stripper. Uh, I also did some porn for a little while, so obviously that's like the next step. Like you can see lots of my my booty and my pussy <laughs> and my boobs on the internet. <laughs> um, but yeah, as a stripper, like it is absolutely, um, it, it you know it's it's intertwined with um, with sex work. And although it's you know strippers sit higher up in the hierarchy of of things, um, you know it still does 
create some problems when you're trying to access loans because, you know, a lot of the bars don't necessarily give you protections because they they give you all the expectations of being an employee but none of the protections of being an employee. You know, you don't get sick leave, you don't get uh, time off, you don't get holiday leave and all those sorts of things. So, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, you know, I don't see that, that stripping is, is somehow an elite sex work or anything like that. It's just it's just a different level of service that's being provided. Right. And how is it in Canada? Like, what are what is the legislation like, or the protections or lack thereof? Oh, it's interesting. It's uh, so basically the clubs here go through an agency to book dancers. So it means that the um, the dancers are very much always in flux. Like in in some clubs, if if you're working, you're working with the same girls week after week. So it gives you more of an opportunity to be able to band together, to organize, and to object to you know, shady kind of behaviour, as as has happened in some other places. But here, because you're, you're working in a different venue every single week, it, it really does um, disperse the workforce quite considerably and it makes it very, very different, difficult to organise and take a stand against any kind of nefarious conduct that happens. Um, where, I'm, where I live right now, Alberta actually requires a licence from the city, so you have to get a police record check and, um, and pay up to $300 for one year for a license to strip in the club. And that's just for you to be registered with the city. That doesn't provide you with any any sort of protections whatsoever. It's really just a just a it's a way to monitor you and to, to, for, the, for the city to get their cut of right. um of what's happening. So I mean do they in doing that, is there any benefit to being scheduled or, or placed by an agency? Or do you think it's because it sounds like well obviously like you said, the way that it kind of prohibits the dancers from banding together to unionizing or, you know, mm-hmm. creating this, this uh, collective of themselves. I mean, do, do you feel like it's it's for that or like there is some benefit to it that maybe balances that out or uh, uh, assume? But Yeah, not honestly, not really, because it means that you, rather than just having a good relationship with the club you're working at, you also need to have a good relationship with the agent. And, I mean, the agent is, he is the guy who runs things right now he's not he's not in it for the girls he has not ever been in it for the girls he's absolutely in it for the money and I mean an example that I can think of of uh, another stripper stripper sister who just approached me this week was that she's with a with uh, one of the the only clubs in the province that isn't part of the agency and um because that's obviously restricting a lot of um her ability to work and all that sort of stuff She's wanting to to make the hop across to the agency, so she put in a call to the agent, and he was, you know, he basically was like, "Well, you have to stop promoting this other club immediately. Um, I need you to feed me some information for a certain amount of time from that club before I'll consider putting you on the agency books, and and all of this sort of thing." So he he was making like some incredible hurdles for her to actually get out of the club that right. she's in in order to join the agency to have access to the other sort of 20, 20 clubs on his books, I guess. Um, yeah. And it also means like cross-provincially um, the same sort of thing happens. Basically if if he and if the agent here in Alberta crosses fucking dicks with the agent in British Columbia, then they, they'll put out a statement saying no girl can work in British Columbia. Like if you work in British Columbia, if you work for this this other this other agent, then fucking you're blacklisted kind of thing. And so it has a huge amount of control over the movement when there's absolutely no protections or guarantees of work. Right. So and how is that's it- a big thing. Yeah, it sounds like it. And like having to pay for the the license, you know, the certification to be a dancer every year that's 
that's absurd too. But are there any other um, vocations that require that sort of thing, or is it seems kind of like specific to anything relating to sex? Um, I believe there's also an escort license, which is considerably more expensive. Um, hmm. And I'm not I'm not too sure about you know what sort of what that's all about to to be honest. But you know if there are some massage parlors here that are technically like whatever, you know, basically it's it's still, it's a very gray area. It's it's like the law around full service sex work is uh, whatever happens, what's ever negotiated between two consenting adults behind closed doors isn't a problem. But the fact is, like every now and again, those places still are busted and they still do sing stings on them and all that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, there's I guess there are a few other professions that have that have sort of you know licenses and certifications and that sort of thing. But but those things would be needed in order to have access to a union right so you know you have to be say a certified a certified electrician but then you can join the electric electrical contractors union in order to get some protections where this is just okay you're registered and you have nothing else for it so even with that setup are there any unions at all i mean for like uh, dancers or full service uh sex no. workers no okay is it prohibited or it just has not happened yet it just hasn't happened okay do you, does it seem like there's a, some sort of grassroots or, you know, some efforts at, at establishing one or? Um, I mean, guys- dancers have definitely spoken about it on and off, kind of in hushed, hushed whispers um, since I've been in the country and I'm sure since beforehand, but it's just never, ever materialized into, you know, into actually creating a full union. Yeah. So it's interesting. I've, now I think I'm up to like a dozen sex workers that I've, I've interviewed for this show so far. And you're the first one to mention the hierarchy. So can you um, just talk about that a bit more for anyone listening who might not understand what you're talking yeah, about? No problems. Um, so the hierarchy basically is like, I guess it's this, this self-imposed stratification, um, which I, I, it's kind of, I guess it's an extension of rape culture, um, which basically says, you know, like if, well, if you, if you're a stripper, then you know then it's, it's a certain level of sex work and strippers often will look down on girls who do full service work and girls who do full service work say in a massage parlor will look down on street working um dance like street street workers and it's it's definitely something that's a carryover from the patriarchy kind of along the lines of well you know you wouldn't have got raped if you didn't go out in those clothes which basically implies that well as long as you dress pretty then it's fine for somebody else you know if it's like well then it's just sort of someone else's fault that they got raped because there's always going to be someone who's like you know in a in a more vulnerable situation and it's and so i guess that's where the hierarchy fits in there's always going to be someone who um you know if they're working in survival sex work is going to need to make more concessions on their safety um in order to to do the work i guess or if you know they're just maybe they're more comfortable and um you know and there's that that whole the whole concept about women you know owning their sexuality being incredibly freaking threatening to the patriarchy and so you know the more agency a woman has over their body or a female presenting person has over their body in order to get money from the patriarchy because it's typically you know rich rich men who are accessing these services um then it really is it kind of destabilizes the power and uh yeah I'm grateful that you, you know, you brought up its connection to rape culture because I, I think so often um, that gets a little lost in the conversation. You know, like we kind of forget that this is like an ever present kind of backbone of the whole situation. And, and I mean, 
living in a patriarchal society in general, not even, you know, going into sex work. But um, so do, have you been in a position where you felt unsafe doing what you do? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk about, I mean, are there, are there any instances maybe you could share? Um, there, yeah. I mean, look, for, for, for the most part, I've been fortunate enough to work in clubs that, you know, did have good security, um, that kept an eye on, you know, kept an eye, a good eye on the patrons and all that sort of thing. But um, there was once I was working at a, a club that allowed some limited contact, so it was basically contact from the waist up, and um, the, they sort of had little walled boots, and this guy, had, he'd obviously come to the club regularly, and he knew there was, like, one little section that kind of just con- concealed things a little bit more from the bouncer that was standing near the door, and... Um, and he grabbed me by the throat and pulled me in really close and just whispered, I can snap your neck at any fucking second. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then I, I basically was like, there's not much I could do. He had me by the throat. I couldn't really breathe and he got me so off guard. And then he just let me go and then just, like, asked me to keep on dancing kind of thing. And I'm like, I'm not really comfortable with that at this point in time. But thanks, man. Um, and, I mean, there's been a few other instances like that where, you know, there's been venues where you have a, a, a private dance room that, is, is not well, doesn't have good security, doesn't have good lighting, um, and that does really put you in a really vulnerable position. Um, so, yeah, and then it's just just staying alert all the time and, I mean, taking advantage of the fact that as a stripper you're wearing six-inch blades on your feet <laughs> and always having your shoes on or within hands reach. So in that instance that you described with that guy, were you – able to get him thrown out of the club were you able to get somebody to handle it you know once you got out of that space or it was something that you like it would have been held against you in some way by the club uh well the bouncer just was like they just like oh i didn't see it all i'll keep an eye on him and that was it that was it like why would i lie i literally never made a complaint before so yeah and i mean actually makes me think there was another time that um it was a, a bunch of guys who had got vip service and this guy was obviously really, really drunk, really, really coked up, and he was just running his mouth about this, that, and the next thing. He was being super sexist, super racist, and I was like, you know, I kind of don't really want to be in this situation. And then uh, he's like, oh, wait, before you go, you've got to say high five, man. My my friend's the best. I'm like, yeah, okay, I'll high five you. And the second I did, he uh, he actually chicken winged me and slammed me face down on the couch. And um, <laughs> I went and I went to security, and that was on that was on camera and everything. And the bar was like. Yeah, okay, well we'll just we'll just ease up on his alcohol service for a bit, but they're spending a lot of money. And so nothing was done. And I wasn't able to do poll tricks that night because he had wrenched my shoulder pretty badly. That shit's terrible. I'm sorry yeah. that's happening. But I yeah, I know you're not the only one too. No, it's pretty it's it's pretty common, unfortunately. So I'm you know, we do have a diverse audience of listeners. So anybody hearing something like this, I mean it's hard to hear. It's also you know, hard to hear anybody getting assaulted in any situation, but, you know, something that's tied to your work. What What's your reason for continuing to do this, you know, given the risks to your own personal safety? Sure. Well, I mean, those, those incidences are few and far between. Like I said, like I've stripped all over the world for the best part of a decade. And I can, I actually, I had to really think about those circumstances. And so, I mean, there was only really a scattering of times that my physical health was truly ever risked. Or my safety was my safety was directly threatened, or hands were laid upon me in that sort of a way. Um, but as a whole, being able to have the freedom and the employment that I had, and um, got basically 
make money in a shorter amount of time that I was able to put towards some of my passion projects. That was actually super, super important to me because I could pick and choose when I wanted to work. And for the most part, I could choose where I wanted to work. There was a club that I knew didn't treat, treat dancers particularly well or there was issues with safety then I just wouldn't book there and I would I had like literally a couple of dozen clubs to choose from to be able to go to you know and so that was I guess that was a really big privilege that I was able to travel to different clubs as opposed to being stuck maybe in you know a small town with one single club where whatever happens kind of happens yeah and so for me that was definitely definitely the reason because I didn't I didn't actually get into stripping until I was 27 yeah, 27. So I had, you know, I'll just leave it back. So uh, I'd already worked in corporate and realized like that, that life for me was more injurious to my health and mm. um, working in like a really, that sort of a corporate environment, I, I definitely had a drinking problem. Whereas working and stripping, despite the fact it was an alcohol laden industry, I didn't because I mm. was wanting to do other things. And I just, I didn't have time to be fucking hungover. I didn't have time to be coming down. And um and it also me staying sober put me at an absolute dis- at an absolute advantage to most of the people in the club because a lot of them are inebriated. And so if you can think a little bit quicker than than the people that you're around, then you can usually mean that turn things to your to your advantage, which is what I did. So yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's funny you bring up corporate work too, because um, yeah, I, I left the corporate world. Yeah, I guess like two and a half years now, mm-hmm. um, and and I dabbled in stripping in college, but I don't feel like I have enough experience with it to, to speak to that experience. With but I mean, I'm sure corporate culture everywhere around the world is similar, especially like the more buttoned up in corporate, the uh, environment, the seemingly worse that it is. And, you know, it was also making me think when you were talking about, you know, like the financial independence that, that comes from you doing this work and, and being able to earn so much more, you know, I couldn't help but think of the wage gap, you know, and, and just women all over the world being paid less and especially women of color. When you think about the positives that come with the work that you're doing now, aside from the financial independence, is it, does it feel like a feminist action or a statement or is it sexually empowering? Can you talk about the other pluses? Um, I definitely found it sexually empowering because, you know, when you have a contract and that sort of thing, it doesn't matter. You might, you might be PMSing like, fuck, you feel bloated, your skin feels greasy, you're just fucking tired, but you get up on stage, you know, and guys are like, oh, like deep down that biological drivers, they're like, oh, she's so ripe. And they don't (laughs) understand, they don't understand, but they're, but their little, you know, that, that, that little Neanderthal brain is picking up on those pheromones. And I mean, sometimes it's like when I felt absolutely shit because of my hormones was when I just went oh my god I can have a money bath right now and to some degree it will it does help to shift the way that you you know you see yourself and see um see your femininity because like particularly you know being you know that the whole there's a lot of shame around menstruation um I think that's that's definitely sort of schooled into us and that sort of thing um it's like like it's something to be hidden but when you're in that state and you're PMSing and your body's doing its thing and and it's become it heightens its desirability you're like oh okay well that's shame around menstruation is fucking bullshit because here <laughs> i am and literally the heart of like like the basically the flag flying patriarchal fucking stronghold and these guys just are like i can't even i don't know you're so lovely you smell so good and you're like yeah motherfucker i do 
Um, so I think I think that that was definitely one super interesting thing. It's definitely a feminist thing. Like um, the money that I made, I didn't didn't, didn't I, I did a little bit of travel, so I, I used it to see the world and connect with other people. But a lot of what I did was I I put that money into um, into creating other productions, like specifically burlesque and creating festivals, and um, uh, in order to have an out because I wanted to make sure that I had an out when I finished uh, when I finished stripping. And so that was cool because I was taking money from these like just pig-headed patriarchal <laughs> fucking you know strip club goers and pouring it into the arts and giving space to artists. And for me, that was a super super fun kind of subversion of the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that sounds great. Yeah. So since you you brought it up, the menstruating through when you're stripping, I imagine like it poses some unique challenges. So in in Canada, is it full nude or are you wearing like a G-string or something? Nope, full nude. Full nude. So I've heard, you know, cutting the string of tampons, but now we have so many other methods of dealing with blood flow, like the cups and, and things like that. Do you have any tricks? Um, so <laughs> I don't personally like to cut the string. I'm, I, I'm always I'm just paranoid. I'm going to give you a little bit of an overshare about my biology. So I have a, <laughs> uh, I have a tilted uterus, which basically means I have a nice little pocket that sits up behind my cervix that shit can get lost. Um, so I don't like to cut the string. I like to have as much possible as to be able to fish that motherfucker out if necessary. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I'm also not, um, really tried diva cups or um, I've tried sponges once um, but for me yeah just typically like just curling the tampon string and making sure it was tucked up inside as well was my personal my personal go-to <laughs> do you ever see anybody that's just like fuck it like they they show the tampon string and there's just like out there or like would a club owner stop you or, or would anybody take notice of that I mean have you ever witnessed that um, I wondering. personally once forgot to tuck my tampon string um and that was that was just like ah fuck and it was only once because I was like I never want that to fucking happen again but no as a rule it's like although though you guys love to smell that you're fertile and all that sort of thing they don't want to be reminded that you are a menstruating human because you are a fantasy and and for like the mainstream for people who come in part of that fantasy is that you know you're not going to be bleeding to take away their happy fun time so um yeah most most girls that i know would always that would do the double check to make sure the string wasn't ha- hanging out and that there wasn't any clitty like any clitty litter from when they went to the toilet <laughs> so the time that you forgot did somebody point it out to you or you realized yourself oh no 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 the expression on that guy's face when i went straight <laughs> eagle and i went no it was so funny so can you tell me a bit about like how you grew up with sex was it something that you grew up kind of you know like your family was embracing of it or was it something that (laughs) (laughs) yeah no I uh so I grew up with a um a pretty traditional restrictive uh Italian dad who um I I mean he was he was kind of horrified when I started menstruating at 11 and was like is this normal I think should we need to take her to the doctor and blah 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 it's like maybe stop giving me hormone filled chicken but also (laughs) yeah anyway um but no he was like he definitely was very um, sort of uh, slut shamey. I was one of those kids that, like, if a sexy scene came on the TV, I had to leave the room. If it was a violent scene, it was fine to watch it. Like, that's a whole other fucking issue where, where sex is shamed, but violence is fine. 
that's a really fucking dangerous kind of mix. Um, I learned about sex after, what was that movie, Two, Two Men and a Baby? Like a very, very long scene with all of the credit, the intro credits rolling with the sperm swimming to the egg. I think I was probably, I don't know, eight or nine, and then like my little brother was was conceived, and so then, you know, there was a new, new kid in the family and that sort of a thing. Um, but, yeah, no, it was very... It was kind of very, very sort of hush, hush. And if I looked at a boy for too long, my dad would call me a whore and blah, 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 blah. So I actually got married young and then got divorced young. I had a Britney Spears wedding, basically. <laughs> and then I just went, yeah, I don't I don't like this. This is bullshit. Fuck it. And um, what about educating myself? Can you describe your, your own sexuality? Like where you fall on the spectrum of orientation and, and just like what are you into? Yeah, um, so my, I'm in a, a hetero-presenting relationship, um, but both my partner and I are pansexual. And, um, yeah, so I've had experiences with people of all genders, but my long-term relationships have, have always been with men. And, um, yeah, I don't know. My mum always said if I turned out lesbian, she wouldn't, like, she would be disappointed, but she would still support me. I, I think she's she's definitely growing as a person anyway, and she's a bit more open because I've definitely dropped in a few a few Easter eggs where she, she she's definitely realized that I'm I'm a fucking queer weirdo as fuck individual. Um, <laughs> she knows that she knows that I was a stripper and um, and all that sort of thing. But yeah, so that's that's me. I'm pan, but in a hetero presenting relationship. Gotcha. And I mean, has it been something you've always been kind of like adventurous and exploring, or do you feel like? there were kind of milestones that you know like at this point you realized something and and tried something else or do you feel like you've been on kind of the same path since you first started having sex or being sexual Um, oh no I definitely I've definitely grown to understand myself better over the years um Mm -hmm. like because homosexuality and uh, queerness was just something that wasn't really discussed um in my household beyond um you know beyond like really beyond homophobic slurs I guess um like when I was a teenager probably 13 14 I think was when uh homo homosexuality was no longer illegal in Tasmania which was the state that was immediately south of where I used to live and um so they had like on the news they basically had stories and they had all these people you know in a peaceful protest in the park and like um queer folk you know making out with each other and you know my very strong memory was of dad just just spitting homophobic slurs at the screen and I didn't really quite understand what the issue was. Um, and then I went, I was also at private girls school the whole way through. And because I did air force cadets, I had short hair just because things were easy. And so, you know, all these girls, because I had short hair automatically were just calling me a lesbian, blah, 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 blah. So there was a lot of, cause that was a Catholic school as well. So there was definitely a lot of repression and shame around queerness. And it wasn't until I was in probably my, my mid twenties that I started exploring a little bit more. Um, and even then I just was like, oh, it's just fun. It's just girls are pretty. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, then as I've got older, I was like, oh, this, this person, this person's very androgynous. And, uh, it is also very arousing and, you know, like, and it's definitely been a shift and, and there's been some milestones along the way. So. And the sex education that you got in school. So at that time you would have been in Australia, right? That's right. Because I not I think last week I interviewed somebody else from Australia and they mentioned that in school the only sex education that they got was they were shown the documentary The Red Kangaroo or something like that. 
where it was, um, you know, like a nature movie, essentially, of kangaroos having sex. Not people. <laughs> I'm sad. I missed out on that. What? No, I never saw that. No, mine was very different. Oh, my God. Who was that? Oh, my God. Can you pr- just PM me that shit? I want to see the red kangaroo now. What the fuck? Um, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's wild. Um, no, so I, again, because I went to a, a private school, um, the well actually we had a, like the we had a tiny little bit of biology that was taught in grade six, but only because um someone had got their their period and I think they were embarrassed or something and so like they'd left their pad out because they, it was a primary school. There wasn't bins to put um sanitary napkins in or whatever. Yeah. So the boys and the girls were separated and then the girls were given a talk about stuff and then the boys were separately given a talk about stuff and we weren't supposed to tell the others what we were talking about kind of thing so that was in like grade six so I would have been like 12 at that point um and then in in high school we had a little bit of sexual education but it was very very basic contraception like which I think they weren't even really supposed to be doing but the teacher was like fuck that I'm not having these girls go out in the world not knowing the basics about contraception you know the basics about conception and condoms um but you know alongside that we were shown uh, a video of uh, this nun you know talking about like your body and your virginity and comparing it to a used handkerchief so it's like you know if you had a handkerchief and like you sneezed in it you wouldn't go give it to your friend now would you so it was like a really again a really kind of gross and degrading way of of talking about maintaining your virginity because otherwise you would just be like a used tissue yeah which which sucked and i was like that seems like a really shitty analogy. I'm not paying attention to that either. I mean, that, that those are terrible, terrible messages to get, and especially how you describe, you know, things that your father would say and whatnot. So in getting these messages, like how, how did you take that at that age? Was it stuff that, like, when you would hear it, you just knew instinctually, like, this is not right? Were there other people that kind of backed you up, that you, you had this sense that, okay, we're not alone, like, these messages are not healthy or were they things that you you took and because you were young and adults are telling you these things that you actually believed these things for a time uh, I definitely believed those things for a time like a lot of it was reinforced like like you know at when you're in when you're in high school and 14 15 years old like the worst thing that you can call another girl is a slut kind of yeah. thing like it was a real you know it was definitely a real a real thing around that and there was like you know, lots of whispers about girls who were like hooking up and blah 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 blah, and yeah, it was definitely really, really toxic, um, toxic through my teen years. So, how did you move away from that? So, I I actually married my high school sweetheart, and he was a piece of shit. And um, it was funny. I I have like this little fire in me, and if you if you light the spark at exactly the right time and in the right way, I can be the most defiant motherfucker imaginable and so what had what had happened was I was now married to this fucking dude and um I can't remember we we're having a conversation around something and he he basically was just like no I think I was having feelings for someone I was like this is really weird and I'm like not quite sure how to navigate this and he was like Matt I'm not really concerned um because we're married I, I basically own you now anyway and I just went oh well, I'm going to go fuck this person, obviously, because you don't own me, motherfucker. And so <laughs> I, I, uh, yeah, I did. I like made that choice and I went out and cheated and I was like, oh, okay, what? 
I feel kind of weird, but all right. Um, and then I started going out like clubbing quite a lot. And so I was taking MDMA and, um, MDMA is incredibly fucking therapeutic because it can help you think about stuff and poke around in your own little brain and gives you like quite a soft little blanket of protection to think about shitty things and change the way that you relate to those shitty things. Um, and then furthermore, I then progressed on to trying LSD and I absolutely, I mean, that's not for everybody, but I absolutely am in favor of like, you know, psychedelics being used therapeutically because I definitely made a very conscious choice while tripping to poke around into some of those really harmful thought patterns and spaces and just be like, I don't think that's right. I don't think that's healthy. And I don't really want to live my life bound by those sorts of things. And um, it's definitely made me a, a healthier, more rounded, more accepting person for it. Good. Yeah, it's good to hear. And I, you know, it's funny. I'm I'm sober, but I did spend many, many years. Like I considered myself to be a psychonaut. You know, like a very, very <laughs> nice. psychedelics. But I remember reading something years ago where it was like this speculation on evolution that they thought that the jump from primates to man happened because, you know, like animals are always like naturally coming across things that are either psychedelic or fermented or something and, something, you know, yeah. right. Getting drunk or tripping or whatever. And that they tied the, the jump to man as being when a primate, like they would get into psychedelics and being on psychedelics allowed them to start considering the sense of self yeah. I haven't read that or heard of that, but if you, if you, if like off, obviously off the, uh, the interview, that sounds incredible, but it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. If, if I can find it, I will definitely send it to you. Yeah. Um, can you uh, tell me a bit more about the porn work that you were doing? Just, you know, I'm curious, how did you get into that? Why did you stop? What was your experience with it? Yeah. Um, so one of my, uh, one of my friends, um, she, it is an all of, basically all the porn I've almost all of the porn I did was in Australia. Uh, she'd started working for a company um, that that basically focuses on the very human and also the feminine aspects of porn. Um, Australian porn is remarkably feminist. Like it is actually this weird, amazing little fucking slice of porn that's honestly delightful. And so I did make the choice. I was like, you know what, I do want to put some porn out there that owns my sexuality and that I'm in control of my own sexuality just so that people have those options to see real people porn as opposed to like the super high definition you know stuff plunging into holes yeah. you know extra you know botoxed and filled and blah 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 blah. which is not a problem with that but when that's the only thing and a lot of sex education is lacking and that's the only thing available and that's what kids see then they they start also developing really unhealthy relationships and expectations around sexuality um so yeah my friend was working with this company and she's like oh we have these couple of different projects that you can work on and I was like fuck yeah let me let me do that and then um they and then like from there I was able to get connected because there's, there's not that many people doing porn in Australia so then I was able to get referred to other um other productions and that sort of thing so um and it was really funny it was super weird because <laughs> I was being interviewed um so my my ex-husband and I we actually did a porn together and it was really really lovely and it was for a company um am I allowed to plug them yeah. oh okay so it was this company called Bright Desire and so they specialized in like real relationship sex and so it's like couples or if people are in like a triad or or whatever and um and it's really really beautiful and it's basically un 
unscripted, un, you know, undirected. You just do the things that you do as a couple. And um, so we shot that and there was someone on the set who was like learning, you know, learning about the porn industry. And so then when I came back to Australia, um, she had sent out this, this casting call. And so I put my name in for it and it turned out that the producer was the woman who was actually sort of on set learning about it. She was like, oh, my God, you're on the country? Yes, I want you in my fucking porno. I was like, sweet, awesome. So, um, yeah, so I think I've got like, I mean, it'll be less it'll be less than a dozen movies out there, but it was fun and it was interesting and I had some really awesome laughs and uh, some really fun real real sex stuff out there. Yeah. Yeah. I that I'm gr- glad that you actually did mention the uh the bright desire of the company um because that's a, a great thing to know about Australian porn especially because we <laughs> at least in the states I'm not sure what it's like in Canada but um yeah, but it, well, there is definitely like the ethical independent porn wave, but it just fails in comparison. Yeah, into the like um, the Gonzo movies and that sort of thing. But so the very first company, so if I can do a plug, so the first company I worked with is called Feck, and okay. they are the ones that they have a couple of different projects, which was um, Beautiful Agony, which is literally just a video of your face as you climax, and ah. that's open to people of all genders, um, and it's really, really, really beautiful because you know it's like. It shows like what sex faces are supposed to look like. Um, and the next one is um, I, I shot myself and it's basically you holding a camera and it has to be like a self-portraiture. So you holding a camera and taking photos of your body as you gradually undress and different like nude angles. And then I feel myself, which is just um, pure, just purely masturbation and just you making yourself come however it is. And that one's set in a in a nice, like a nice little studio and a lot sort of thing. But basically they set up the camera, set the lighting, and then they just let you just have at her until until you come i love um, this great well thank you for sharing that i'm definitely going to look at all of it and i'll include links in the episode notes so people have it too i'm uh very pro porn um but i i'm pro porn in the sense that i i actually think um that if we expanded what like at least in the states the current state of pornography is it just mm. has so many potential other uses mm. and i mean just the way that you're describing these projects like these could be such beautiful supplements to sex education. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for sharing that. I appreciate no problem. It. So what porn are you into? Me? Yeah. Um, I like hentai. <laughs> <laughs> because there they can, they can just be some ridiculously outrageous, like tentacles, all holes penetrated without actually harming a person kind of thing. So it like it allows I feel it allows like some some sort of fantasies to be um, explored without without a person being victimized in that in that situation um, because it's really hard because you know because that's the thing with some of the with some of the pawns and you don't know um, the quality of the company or or whatever you, you, and because 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 come faces aren't always pretty you're like is this person actually having a good time or are they actually in pain? And if they're, if I have a moment of doubt that the person maybe doesn't want two penises in their bum hole, then I don't really want to watch that. You know, I don't want to see someone in discomfort for someone else's pleasure. That's not, that's not fun to watch at all. Um, and yeah, I like watching group sex as well. But sometimes it's really sweet. It could be whatever combination of people. You mentioned that you're in a like a hetero presenting relationship. Having had the experience that you had with marriage, are you kind of like over marriage? Do you feel like you're in a place where you're 
desire for relationships are just, you know, not, they don't need to, or you don't want them to be tied to some sort of structure or institution. Like how have your ideas about relationship and your needs in a relationship evolved over your life? Uh, I've definitely moved away from thinking that there is just like one person that has to be your person for forever and eternity. Um, I don't think it's possible as humans being the complicated, ridiculous creatures that we are to have one fucking person who's supposed to satisfy all of your physical and emotional needs. Um, While neither of us are like looking for anyone else for physical, you know, you know, for, for physical satisfaction or anything like that. Like the fact is that we can have, we can have fucking reasonable conversations around it and it's not a fight. Mm-hmm. It's just like, oh, I'm really I'm really into this person at the moment. It's like, well, do you want to have sex with them or anything? It's just like, no, I think I'm just having a really nice time flirting with them. It's just fun and safe. And it's like, okay, I'll have fun flirting with them. Like it's we can have conversations around those things without, you know, where if where if I was younger, um, yeah, I mean like my first husband I was like, hey, I'm having these weird feelings and though and it was just like dismissed. So it's definitely a very, very different relationship because both of us have had previous marriages kind of thing and, um, you know, relationships that weren't particularly healthy where those sorts of conversations were, were taboo or just automatically a fight. It's like, oh, you looked at someone else, are you cheating on me? No, fuck, we're humans. Like we're, we like to look at things. We like to talk to other people whose energies vibe with us and it doesn't automatically, you know, mean that there's infidelity. And, I mean, the whole point around infidelity is also a fucking patriarchal structure about control and ownership. And so that in itself is just a whole other mess. That would be a whole other hour of a podcast. Yeah, but it, it sounds like that's really healthy communication. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely. It's nice just to be able to say those things and just and, and be able to say them safely and without judgment. Yeah. And do your, does your partner now have any issue with the work that you do or have you ever had that happen? No. No, um, he he was um, he's always been really supportive, my, and even my ex husband. Uh, sorry, I probably should clarify. I've been married twice. So my first ex husband was a piece of shit. My second ex husband, I'm still friends with because he's he's not a piece of shit. He just needs to do a lot of growing that he has to do by himself. The second ex husband is the one that you did the relationship porn with. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> I probably should clarify that. So the second ex husband, but yeah, no, like they 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 both were really really supportive the whole time in fact they were they 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 were they were really good accomplices i guess in my stripping because occasionally they would come to the club and they'd be like oh my god look at this oh this book she's just she's so fucking hot i'm gonna go get some money and guys are like oh shit you're getting money i should get money and so they would like they would convince other guys in the clubs to throw money at me <laughs> and, and like help me hustle which was lovely that is yeah so that was really good they were but they were always really supportive so that's a fucking blessing. So can you talk about like the events and the organizations that you, you know, that you've created and that you're working on and that you, you described kind of like, this is your legacy plan. So can you talk more about like the work you're actually doing things we might be able to look forward to, et cetera. Um, So I guess my my biggest project that I was really excited that I I helped kickstart was the Edmonton Burlesque Festival. Um, Unfortunately, that is, um, that's like folding. Uh, this year, not due to COVID, just due to some just growth that's happening in burlesque and that sort of thing, I guess. Um, but that was really amazing because I, I, I put a lot of the seed money into that company um, in order to get it off the ground and all that sort of thing. And I always made my money back, which is fucking remarkable in itself. Um, but yeah, for seven years, like we delivered some really amazing, um, 
some really amazing shows up in, in Edmonton. And then I worked for the Vancouver Burlesque Festival for a little while, but just as an, sort of an administration role. Um, I still work with the Burlesque Call of Fame based out of Vegas. And actually the call that I was on before we started um, our chat today was about how we're moving forward, you know, creating opportunity and um, really, really putting diversity and inclusion as a very central component to the work that we're doing because obviously that's a question that with the current Black Lives Matter movement that um, a lot more people are feeling that they have they have space and they will have the support to be able to say what needs to be said in terms of spaces that haven't traditionally been welcoming or haven't traditionally been diverse or the spaces that have been appropriative that they can call out that sort of thing now and so as you know as a museum and as the the weekender personnel we're very much wanting to make sure that we are moving with the times and um, helping to uphold those kind of I guess really feminist values that are supposed to go hand in hand with Bella's. Um so I, I did actually quit stripping a little while ago now but my exit strategy worked um, because I did a lot of this event management work I was able to hide my stripping career it's, it definitely gave me the groundwork and meant that I had a lot of the a lot of the skills that were needed to be able to make that transition from away from um, stripping as my primary income with I guess performing arts production as a sort of secondary hobby into the, the production side um, as my full-time career. Oh, actually, I probably should say, so I still, even though I'm now working full-time for in um, sort of a production company, um, my uh, my small production sort of house that I still have is uh, Salty Fish Creations. Arthur and I um, are both uh, queer women and we were looking at, the incredibly slow rate of change and acceptance that was happening in the burlesque scene in terms of um, diversity and gender inclusion and racial inclusion, and we decided that we wanted to do something different, which is where the salty fish comes from. Because we were just really salty about people who were doing sort of performative allyship statements but then just continuing to do whatever the fuck we wanted. So um, our our mandate is to, to have like really, really awesome shows that were absolutely centric on queer and black folk artists and, and having their stories put on stage ahead of ours. So I, I basically don't actually perform for Salty Fish Creations. I just do the, the work in order to continue to create the spaces for amazing artists to, to do what they do best. I, I guess it's hard to say being in one place and trying to compare it to another that you don't live in. But I mean, obviously, racism is just so fundamentally a part of the U.S. history, just, you know, things really coming to a head now. Do you feel, I mean, is your sense of it in Canada, is it similar or, I mean, I mean how oh, do you... Oh, that's the can of worms. <laughs> the end of the interview to bring this up. Um, I think Canada uses America's very public mess as a neat little deflection of the issues that are as prevalent here. Um, you know, the American police force was initially formed in order to capture and return escaped slaves. And although there's been police reform over the years, it still absolutely continues to harbour white supremacists and is still built on a very racially biased construct. Um, Canada has the RCMP, which is the Royal Canadian, Canadian Mounted Police, which were created for pretty much the same freaking reason. Um, which was to continue to like keep um, First Nations, um, Indigenous folk on their reservations to prosecute them. Um, Canada is still 
racist as fuck. Um, everyone's just really polite about it. Gotcha. And with performers, I mean, do you find, um, because I mean, over here, you know, black and brown sex workers are often bearing the brunt of the work, you know, the burden of the work and, and white sex workers are much more privileged in that they're not facing prosecution as much. And, you know, all of these other things that threaten one's safety and one's ability to earn and exist. Is it similar there? I mean, it sounds like probably yes. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, in, in terms of so that this sort of inquiry that's supposedly happening, but only because of incredible pushes by the Indigenous community, um, which is to investigate the missing and murdered Indigenous women, which is a massive, massive issue here. And a lot of those women were, um, were you know, were sex workers. Typically, they their, their deaths are not investigated. Um, and as they've continued to not be invested to the same degree as like as black women, they are absolutely seen as like the I guess the bottom of the hierarchy in 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 um, societal a- attention to their needs. I'm not I can't I'm not I'm not really sure how how to phrase this, but yeah. you know for for for, for the discriminate the discrimination that that happens is definitely focused um, when you have those different intersections of gender and income and access. Well, thank you for, you know, partnering with those Black Sex Worker Collective and being a part of their fundraiser. And, you know, thank you for those salty bish creations. You're <laughs> doing your part over there. So but thank you. And thank you so much for spending this time talking with me and, and sharing so intimately. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you for the time. And I really hope that this um, big event is going to be a massive, massive global success. Big props. Big props to Okinos and everybody yes. else who's helping to produce. Great. Well, thank you so much, Arabella. And um, that's it. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. As with other episodes in this series, today's show notes will include links and information to the entire fundraiser event, as well as links to Arabella and Salty Bish Creation specific event. I'm also going to include ways to follow Arabella and Salty Bish on social media, along with more information about their group so you can learn more about what they're doing. All right, stay tuned for next week's episode. And until then, I wish you well. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sex Communication. Please subscribe and leave a review wherever you get your podcast. And if you'd like more information about the show, visit us online at sexcompod.com. That's S-E-X-C-O-M-P-O-D.com. If you'd like to be a part of the show, please email me at sexcompod at gmail.com. I am always looking for new sex audio and people to interview. It could be you.